We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. We're really happy to be back and we can't wait to share all of our stories of what architects do and why it's important. In this episode, our host Lily Zhang is interviewing Andrew Noonan from Andrew Noonan Architects. Andrew shares how his interest in sustainability led him to learn more about circular economies and how sustainable considerations throughout the entire architecture process create projects that have the best results for people and the environment. Let's jump in. Thanks for coming, Andrew, to the Circular Economy podcast. We would first like to acknowledge the Turbal and Yagara people as the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather today and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities of all Aboriginal, Torres Straits people. May their strength and wisdom be with us today. And so today we have Andrew Noonan. He is the founder of Andrew Noonan Architects. He is also a member of the Australian Institute of Architects, Queensland Chapter Climate Action and Sustainability Committee, and currently serves on Chapter Council for the Queensland branch and the Australian Institute of Architects. So, Andrew, What got you interested in sustainability in architecture in the first place? I'm quite curious. It's a good question. It's one that goes back a long time. Probably before I even started studying architecture, I was quite interested in the natural environment and how humans interact with it. And that was through studying uh, geography at school. And I guess I've always carried on that mindset through architecture. And certainly when I went to university at the University of New South Wales, it was a focus of the academic program at the time. I was managed to get in in a small window, I think, when sustainability was the driving force of architecture for a few years before 3D modelling became a big focus. And, you know, rightly so, there's a lot of benefits that's come from that, a lot of efficiencies. But there was a, a small period there where there was a big push for sustainability. And so that was probably the foundation of it. And when you leave university, of course, you move into different fields and it's not always the same. But that interest and that drive came back when I was around the age of 30. I was working at Cox Architecture and we were working on the University of Wollongong's Sustainable Building Research Centre, which was the first living building in Australia. And the complexity of that process and the deep diving that you had to do to understand the impact the building had in its materials and its supply chain and its operations uh, on on the local community and the broader community really sparked that interest and and enabled me to continue to investigate and uh, research what impact buildings have. Yeah, awesome. And from then on, what made you pursue further studies in circular economy in particular? It's one of those buzzwords that you hear around, I guess, and you hear that there's a few that keep coming up. And I am the kind of person that when I hear buzzwords, I try to deep dive into them for some reason. Not even buzzwords, just uh, more complex concepts than we get fed through our education. And so trying to understand what it really meant. And I think there's a lot of confusion in the market, in the industry and the general public about what the circular economy really is. That prompted me to want to find out more and I came across an ad from the University of Cambridge for one of their short courses. And so I kind of dived straight in and found out more. So what did you think what circular economy meant? And after you studied, how have your perspective changed after that? The circular economy probably had connotations of really reusing found objects in my head at the time of when I was at university, I did a lot of work in the, a lot of study in the art school. And a lot of art at the time was about found objects. And I suspect that had some bearing on my understanding of what that version of circular economy was. And I knew it had to be more than, you know, making buildings out of old bits of cars and old bits of 
boats and things uh, or anything for that matter. And so learning more about the processes and the techniques of circularity really shifted my perspective on that. And certainly even in terms of it not purely being about uh, material reuse, but re-looking at methods of procuring things in the first place. So not actually being the owner, but the, you know, the servitization of materials or objects or things like lighting. I think they're really surprising elements that change my perspective of what it is. So in that sense, circular economy enables us to become custodians of materials rather than owners of materials and really look after them and pass them on to the next user. Yeah, especially because now that we're really pushing sustainability and the use of reusing, upcycling materials. And I guess there's a lot of misconceptions people view when it comes to sustainability and circular economy. But as someone who isn't as much of an expert in this field, what's the difference between the two? Um, I think the, the main misconception I'll add is that the circular economy is recycling and a lot of it's to do with recycling. It's definitely like, it's a part of it. It's the last resort. The recycling is what you do at the very end. The next step up from that would be downcycling. So when we talk about concrete and crushing it into road base and fill, that's really the last answer for that material. It, it goes into something, sure it has some value, but it's a very significantly lower value than the original product was. The key idea in the circular economy is ultimately to retain the value of the product, to maintain its relevance and ideally to remove the need to reprocess as much as possible. And then above that, remove the need for things that are redundant. So if you take multiple objects, for example, and you, you can convert them into one, you automatically reduce consumption and you streamline processes and, and transport. So it does really shift the way that we start to look at how things are, uh, how they're made, how they're rebuilt, how they're repurposed all the way through supply chains. So it's not just from an end user perspective. And I think that's probably one of the bigger aspects is the end user perspective is that we think we, we take something on and then how do we cycle that differently? But there's a whole supply chain implication, whether that be timber from forestries, what happens to all the offcuts and sawdust and how it can be repurposed into something useful and economically beneficial to the logistics networks that then deliver so if you, went, if you did take uh, the timber industry as an example, got forestry trucks who take logs of trees to mills, they mill those trees down into cut timber. The sawdust will then probably go to something like a compressed sawdust pellet for energy recovery, so burning through power stations. The larger chips can be then made into compressed board and those products get put onto a truck, they drive somewhere. And then that truck then has an opportunity for reverse logistics to bring back supplies for that timber industry, whether they're packaging materials, saw blades, fuels, the things that industry, that mill needs to, to function. And so all of a sudden you're reducing a truck movement from one location to the next location. And it's thinking about that implication along all the different aspects of the supply chain that start to build up a true circular understanding of an economy and how we can leverage the resources that we're currently using to the greatest impact. And even beyond before that, you know, with the forestry situation, you know, you're cutting a tree down and replanting a tree, you're replenishing the stock. Um, that's a really easy example of something circular because it is by nature able to be circular quite easily. Uh, but putting stuff back in the ground from the process of logging to enable that soil to stay, maintain its richness and Nutrient content for the next set of trees to grow is also important. Yeah, wow. You'd never really think about all that much details, but now that you mention it, that is a lot to can kind of consider, even to the very tiny bit, and also considering about the future generations as well. And that's before it even gets to Bunnings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, there, there are some really good other examples in the circular economy, so I think worth mentioning, which aren't as primary resource focused. For example, uh, Philips in Europe have servitized lighting. And so their version of you as a consumer purchasing the light per minute uh, per lux level versus buying a light fitting means that Philips is always responsible for that material. They maintain use of that asset. And so it's in their best interest to make sure that that has the highest value for them because 
it's the enabler of what they then sell as lighting as a, as a service. So that's a completely different model of how we consume at the end of the day. Yeah, fascinating. So you recently designed your inner city family house that was designed to be energy positive, low water consumption and utilizes reused, reclaimed and remade materials in a modest footprint. And the design approaches embraces passive design principles as well as some experimental construction conceived to block the hot western sun in Brisbane's subtropical climate while maximizing breeze and airflow. What were some of the principles that drove this project of yours? I think the definition of what makes good architecture is changing rapidly at the moment and it will change, continue to change in the next 10 years to be something that's more graphic or shape-making object but something and more focused on how it functions and, and what purpose it brings to people. I think that kind of architecture starts passive first. It takes the whole purpose of making efficient buildings is to remove what's not needed. So if you can take out the need for uh, augmented climate control, then then that's the first step. So going back to the circular economy principles, the first step is to refuse. So if you can refuse the need for something, that's the first step. So the driving principle there was how do you create the most comfortable family home in an environment that is fairly benign but does does ex- experience some hot and humid conditions in summer and we do get cool nights in winter. How do we make that a place that doesn't require heating or cooling to maintain its level of comfort? So that was the first part of it. The next was how do you do that with the least impact to the community and being a good neighbour? So how do we design a building so it has less impact on our neighbours and and doesn't cause them discomfort through overshadowing? And so they're the first two driving principles. Then we start to look at the materials and then for any architect who's sort of delved into materiality in architecture and sustainability, they'll know that that's a, a big, big broad sort of topic to dive into and you have to be very focused on what you're after. And so there's many ways to look at it. So you can start with a low carbon approach or you can start with a reuse approach, which is inherently low carbon, but provides different options. Or you can look at using recycled first because virgin materials are still virgin stock. And if we can use recycled, then we should be looking at that. Then assessing all of those at their end against what their end of life reuse potential is or or reprocessing potential is. And so it becomes quite a complex game after the initial architectural massing. The passive design is fairly straightforward. It's a science we've been doing for many, many decades now. In fact, you could say centuries and millennia if you look at the original housing that people did in their climates. The materiality thing becomes a a different game, particularly when we start to look at the more high-tech opportunities that we have when I say high tech, I don't mean with technology, I just mean uh, building fabrics. So wrapping buildings and making them airtight is one of the most misunderstood objectives, I think, in the Australian construction industry. And this is where something like the passive house system is really changing the way that we think about housing. It's how do we make, how do we use materials in a way to uh, stop, again, or stop the need for climate control because it, it is holding in the most uh, optimum temperature the most optimum condition. And so then that's one of the other competing interests. And then the third part of the project was understanding the history of the house and maintaining the character that it had so that it's not someone coming through in uh, 2021 or 2022 and re-stamping an authoritative design upon something that was existing and something that to the people of Brisbane, they're seen, you know, these houses, these old workers' cottages uh, in inner city Brisbane are seen as a an asset and quite a unique visual character that this city has compared to some of our other major cities in Australia. Yeah, awesome. Tell me more about the history of the workers' cottage and what kind of materials it had in there that you decided to reuse and what were some, some of the other reclaimed materials that were available out there in the market that you use again and what were some of the certain materials out there or certain aspects of it that you found it hard to refuse when you had to make a decision? Yeah, okay. So the cottage history is 
I would say not unique. It's a sort of mid to late 19th century uh, workers' cottage in, in inner Brisbane. Uh, it was a four-bedroom house, pyramid roof, tin pyramid tin roof at the time, steel roof. And by the time we had purchased it, it was in a state of incredible disrepair. And every time I had someone around to have a look at it early on for just the initial maintenance to make sure the house could stand up or when I had it surveyed or did my soil testing, everyone sort of suggested that uh, probably the best answer was to light a fire under it and start again, which <laughs> when, you, when you hear over and over again, it's a little bit disheartening about the mentality that people have of something that, that did have some character, albeit hidden by its uh, disrepair. And so that house had its veranda built in 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 the 1930s, it was pretty common in most of the inner city of Brisbane too. Most of those pre-World War II houses did have the sleep outs built in in some form or another. And they were, you know, part of the character of the house. Well, not one that would be maintained, so I wanted to reinstate the veranda. The textured coloured glass that is so infamous for the old Queensland cottages and becomes a very strong character of those places and a, something that I think if you grew up in one of the houses, you'd recognised quite instantly as being part of that style of house. And I think even in Bluey, the kids' cartoon, they, they have that uh, as a recognisable aspect of Brisbane housing. So that kind of glass window was really important. And so at the time, when we bought the house, uh, most of the front was rotten and um, we had to pull that off and those windows were rotten. But I was keen on keeping the glass. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I did manage to salvage the coloured texture glass from the windows and then remake a new window so I couldn't reuse the timber it was rotten but I spent a lot of time cleaning the glass up and sort of bringing it back to a state it was covered in paint and all sorts of things and old-fashioned oil-based paints that are hard to remove particularly from the texture grooves so you do have to put a lot of effort into salvaging stuff it becomes a bit of a passion project and I did that over the time but I was designing the house and trying to work out what I'd do with it so it kind of became an inspiration in terms of picking this thing up and touching it and looking at it and trying to work out what it would be. So that was one of the parts that we kept. The house otherwise, it was made of timber. It was it's a timber weatherboard cottage, chamfer boards as they're referred to here. When we bought it, it was covered in FC sheet and asbestos. And then when we leveled the house, uh, not leveled it, it knocked it down, but to flatten the floors inside of it um, because the stumps had subsided quite dramatically, uh, all that started to crack off and what was underneath was the old chamfer boards and there was a, a large, we had a great sense of relief that that was there because it meant that we could clean it up. We didn't have to then go and reclad the house instantly. We had some old weatherboards that we could clean up and repair and bring back to their former glory. And I think it's a really good example of when people talk about longevity of materials that you can have timber products and timber houses that are pretty unkept for over 150 years and they're still going and I've come in as probably the fourth or fifth owner of the house over the time and been able to restore that back to what it was. So they were in a fairly benign kind of objects. They don't have any real inherent values, but certainly much cheaper to replace weatherboards than it is to restore them. But the timber frames inside, they're all hardwood and they, they're much more beneficial to maintain. They're much easier to maintain. They sort of did their own thing. The house was keeping them safe from the elements. So they were in fairly good condition. So we're able to keep that however sort of bent or tilted they were over the time as the house has been here and the timbers changed shape over the years from the constant heating and cooling and the humidity changing throughout the year over centuries. A lot of it was just timber. Yeah, it seems like it was way over its um, lifespan. Maybe, but I'm hoping it's here for another 150 years. <laughs> I kept all of that in there. So um, the one that we couldn't keep, unfortunately, was the timber flooring. It had worn, literally worn through and in parts been replaced with timber wine crates and other thin timber products. But we were able to reuse a lot of it. The timber wallboards that were removed uh, were able to take out and strip back and reshape using a planer. They're old Oregon boards. So Back in the time the house was made, the, the timber actually was all imported. The softwoods were all imported from the US. We didn't really have a huge cut timber industry. We, we exported most of our timber offshore and we imported cut timber. And in some strange way, we're still doing a lot of that, even though we have one of the largest supplies of timber available. So what were some of the experimental constructions that you've explored throughout this project? 
The experimental construction aspect was interesting in some ways. It's not usually experimental. Like most experiments, they spring off the back of other people's work and it's not changing the game per se. It sort of just nudges along slightly. But what it was was taking the reverse insulated thermal mass, so reverse brick veneer construction, as, as they say, on the Western Wall, taking that. But then for the outside, using with a reflective membrane, having the reflective face facing out into the cavity behind the, the timber cladding, providing a cavity between the timber and the insulation enabled then the hot air to rise. But the idea of turning the reflective sarking or putting reflective sarking on the Western Wall to radiate the heat from whatever would pass through the timber cladding into the cavity and sort of try and reflect it back out. Reflective insulation um, in this country, across the country, is always facing down. and It's an idea of being able to reflect winter heat back in. And so I was curious if we've got this big woolen, effectively big doona wrapping the house in terms of insulation, and we did bump that right up on the western wall to R4 to make sure that we would be able to keep that heat out. If you can then start to use that reflective insulation to reflect heat further out, a bit like what they did on spacecraft, just trying to understand what benefit that might provide. I did have my builders uh, <laughs> upset because they didn't want to look. They told me they didn't want to look yeah, silly. Yeah, I was curious about that. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were worried that people would think that they've put it in the wrong way, but I had to assure them that I would take full responsibility for that. Yeah, it's part of the feature. It's not a bug, I swear. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Whether that works, it's fine. It's been really good so far. The house has been perfect, uh, both in summer and winter, and we still don't have any heating or cooling. So apart from a few ceiling plans to uh, get air movement happening on still days, it's been uh, very comfortable. Yeah, I've actually visited your place while it was still in construction. And one of the most fascinating parts of it I found was definitely, yeah, how you relocated the stained glass to the main stairway so you kind of enter and there's a staircase and you go up and it's just stained green glass and white glass and it's all frosted and it has different textures and it's really beautiful how you have repurposed that and also found it quite interesting that there is a window which is literally behind you window i wouldn't call it a window shutter timber shutter yeah yeah, like what what was <laughs> what was the design process behind that? Why did you decide to just have a closed shutter instead of a frosted window? Yeah, so that's the um, west facing wall, and the idea there is that for certainly for three quarters of the year up here, ultimately we didn't want any western sun in the house. It's too hot. It gets too hot. So they were a way to provide ventilation. Every room in the house uh, had two windows and on different walls to enable cross ventilation. The house a shallow enough footprint that you can get cross ventilation through the house, but because different bedrooms are wanted to be controlled in different ways, we enabled each room to have that. And so we wanted to have an opening uh, and the only place to put it was on the western wall uh, in, in that particular case. But we didn't want to get any of the solar heat gain through that. So we used a fairly solid, pretty well insulated timber panel to fill in that gap and ability to create ventilation. Some of the other materials that we, going back to your conversation, uh, question before about what what materials did we, else were we able to reuse or keep, some of the less exciting things that we did keep, and this is probably where we've made the most impact, were things like the kitchen. We were able to re take out all the kitchen carcasses and reuse those. The kitchen cooking equipment, which wasn't that old, it was only three or four years old time, we've been able to do that, to take those and reuse those. All the lighting we took out and re reused those. And so there's all these less interesting aspects. Some of the insulation in the original house was able to be reused and repurposed. And bits and pieces like that, which ultimately people don't see and don't know they've been redesigned in a way that you'd never know that they were salvaged and reused, but we've been able to do that in a way, fit them in with new products as needed that match so that they don't seem disjointed to the rest of the house. Yeah, I think it's one thing that people miss the most out of the whole entire process where they don't just overlook a lot of what's not shown on the surface and it's the little bits that really counts and makes a huge difference in the end when it comes to 
you know, reusing a lot of these materials for, and it just lasts for many, many more years. And so besides trying to convince the builders in certain construction that you wanted to design it to be, what were some of the other challenges that you came across and how did you overcome with it? I will say the builders were very good, so I won't I won't put too much on them. They were um, they came to party pretty pretty quickly, so that was I commend them for that. Some of the other challenges we faced, we were building right in the peak of the cost explosion of COVID, and that became hugely <laughs> stressful. I'm sure anyone who's been building in that time knows exactly what that was like. We would be going through processes of trying to reduce costs and over six weeks, the cost of that item, say our timber doors, timber doors are hugely expensive. Australian hardwood timber doors are hugely expensive. And over the time where we were trying to redesign parts of the house to reduce the cost, the cost of doors and and all materials basically went up more than what we were reducing them by. So we had to face some challenges in what was actually essential. And it was a really good process uh, going back to the conversation before about only having what's necessary, that we were forced to really question absolutely everything in the house. What was it? Do we need it to be this? Do we need it to be that? What are the alternatives? What are the alternatives that are still climate positive, I'll call it, or sustainable? What are the, you know, whether they're climate or socially sustainable? Yeah, I mean, it was equally as important for us not to select materials that were ethically bad than it was those that are environmentally bad. So going through processes and and really interrogating every single choice you've made down to backing on boring material or the internal componentry of the hardware to understand that the impacts that they have when you change them from the original spec aren't going to have a greater detriment to the environment. And that was a really fascinating process. It was a great process to go to because, like I said, it really interrogates the necessity of what it is that you're doing and then thinking about what happens at the end of the life of those materials becomes the final kind of tick of approval like is this something that can have an equal or higher value later or is it something that can be if it's biodegradable is easily broken down and and turns into food for worms and, and therefore healthier soils and that's part of the process of that material selection which I don't think is taught at university and certainly not widely discussed in architectural practice. We've moved to a time, I don't think it was recently, but we've certainly moved to a time where the photograph takes precedent and that's the kind of what it looks like is the first thought rather than what happens to it and where it's come from, who made it and all the other aspects that go into the whole supply chain, cradle to cradle or from cradle to cradle, preferably. Yeah, absolutely. And Especially now that you know people are finally starting to apply these sustainability principles into projects, and some of the materials you have already started reusing them, which is basically the first generation of the materials. So, say that maybe in forty or fifty years' time, when your kids have grown up and they are wanting a house to be redesigned that caters towards them. How would you redesign it? I wouldn't let them take the reclaimed glass window out. <laughs> That's staying. <laughs> That's staying. For sure. That's, uh, it's my legacy now. It's definitely a legacy. And I've joked about it. It's the way it looks, you know, as you've seen it, that kind of looks a little bit like a DNA test. And I do describe it as the DNA of the house. It's a lot of the character. But look, the idea of redesigning is something that has come up quite a lot. At the moment, there's a lot of talk about how do you adapt and it, it, it comes down to what's the necessity of adapting uh, and how do you, what is it adapting for? And certainly we've thought about if our children will stay in the house into their late 20s or early 30s, how do we adapt the house then? And there is no straightforward answer because we're not there yet. And until that point comes, you have to tread carefully on how you consider those things, I think. Ideally, you flex how you do things. I mean, we've all lived in rental properties that are far from ideal for what we're doing and we adapt quite easily. And so there is a question about how do we adapt that. The one main adaptation that I do consider is how do we, when the temperatures on average are eight degrees hotter at some point or even four degrees hotter in by 2050, potentially, how do we make sure that 
this house maintains that level of comfort? How do you adapt things to the facade to help further shade it from further heat gain? But what do we have to do to ensure that that comfort level all year round? That's the key for me. I think the way that we live is going to shift more to be focused on how do we live rather than what do I want to live. Yeah, for sure. And just going back to when you were using the existing building materials that are being recycled and then how do you calculate the embodied carbon energy expended during the entire procedure? So what's the approach that you take on when do the materials are stored on site or off site when it gets constructed or yeah i mean this was a bit of an easier project to have it was a small house to begin with when we moved out for the construction process we moved two streets away so the transport factor and the storage of all those materials were uh, kept with us so we, we moved them two streets away and we brought them back so we, we to be short to be honest like in that sense that they weren't calculated we didn't calculate the cost of driving two streets away and then driving two streets back when we returned them the focus on this house wasn't strictly carbon-based as i mentioned there's other aspects we were focusing on so it is more complicated if you want to go down a carbon modeling path it will produce one set of results but if you're looking at much broader systems you have to balance things out more broadly. Not to say carbon's not as important, like not important as part of that factor. It becomes a different focus. And on a house, you know, like the carbon data that we have on materials in this country are still averages. And so they don't tell necessarily a full truth. They're very good at giving us a relative carbon footprint, but they don't give us the whole answer. And so I think there's a little bit of a fallacy around that being the only data point that we should be considering in terms of sustainable outcomes. Certainly, you could argue that building something that people want to maintain for another 150 years is equally as valid. I don't want to overstate design and underplay the real environmental detriment that that happens through construction, but the idea of building something to last for 10 or 15 or 20 years, that's where we start to have, you know, we need to really question that first because that has far greater impact. That idea of throwing out things or not maintaining things is the first big step. But the reuse part is hard to calculate. But to get back to your question, like I won't say that I didn't do any carbon considerations or calculations in the house, but the reuse parts I didn't because they were taken. I took them out myself, a lot of them, and then brought them to my rental and brought them back to site and gave them to the builder to install. So it was almost impossible for me to calculate. Yeah. Now that the project is completed, was there a moment that proved this work was all worth it? Yes. It's hard to put a point on the moment. I think as an architect or anyone who's involved in any design and has been working on something for a number of years, and it's certainly not my first building project, so I was aware of this complexity, is that you live and breathe it and you're thinking about it and it's in your head in the design and you turn it out into a project and you start to see it in reality in something like Enscape. And then you watch it get built over a year and you're on site multiple times a week. And so you never get that final moment of when it's actually finished. All you do is you move in and you notice the things that aren't quite right and, you know, sort of lament the fact that maybe they should have been slightly different. Certainly mistakes get made along the way or early on that you have a bit of an aha moment. I should have done that a little bit differently. But, you know, those things are minuscule in terms of the impact that it's had on us positively. And I think it probably took five months before <laughs> before I had a moment where I was had to pinch myself and, and think, you know, this, this is actually, this is, this is a really good outcome, quite a very happy outcome. I think it was probably a month ago we had, it was seven degrees in the morning. I got my thermal gun out and I measured the internal wall temperatures and they're all 20 degrees. And I knew that the science worked. I felt pretty warm uh, and I was walking around, you know, in shorts and t-shirt at seven six o'clock in the morning when it was seven degrees outside and that was probably the time that i thought you know you can't argue with this anymore it's not that i was a skeptic of the science but you know it just from what the house was how cold it was in winter and how hot it was in summer to now be in it six months and know that the summers aren't that hot and when it is cold in winter it's actually really very comfortable inside it is definitely a great feeling when you have achieved that goal that you have been really wanting to aim for and 
that's why in the architecture it's so important to complete post-occupancy reports and do all these lesson learned so then it's the best way to teach the next generation of architects in how to design better because obviously it works great for you and that's all that matters. But when you first moved in and you realized that there was some minuscule stuff that you wish you could have changed, what were some of those? Oh, there was some parts along the way that the construction wasn't quite necessarily what I documented. Stringers being on, on top of the stairs and rather than under the stairs or on the side of the stairs rather than under the stairs, for example, or certain details yeah, and how I they catch. That. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, some of them have turned out better than expected. Others, only the creator of the, the vision would know that they were different. I don't think um, it sort of detracts from the space. And it's easy for us as architects and designers sometimes to get overly fixated on aspects that ultimately aren't going to change people's lives. They certainly might look slightly better. And I'm not advocating for the fact that we we don't put the same rigor in. I think rigor is really important in the design process, but I think the rigor should focus as much on how people occupy space and how buildings perform, the building physics perform, how comfortable the space is to be in, not just environmentally, like thermally, but also what level of comfort and for a home, what level of homeliness is in there. And so the user experience and how that all comes together, that's where the rigor sits, not in the detail that will be photographed for a magazine or or a blog online or something like that. It's definitely thinking people first or, you know, comfort first. And that comes in many forms, whether it be for designing for people of different ages or different abilities through different functions. How does your kitchen function at seven o'clock in the morning when you're trying to make three kids lunches and make breakfast and make sure they're all ready to go to school versus what are you doing on the weekend to relax after cooking a meal for us all to share and sit around and and talk. And that same space has to function very differently uh, in the same place and the same uh, equipment that you put in enable very different levels of comfort and functionality. Definitely. Especially when you revisit the principles that you had when establishing this project, it answers all of them seamlessly. And overall, it's a great place to be and to live in. And it basically answers all of your lifestyle questions. And yeah, it's a place, it's a place where you can call home. Yeah, hopefully for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully for a long time. Yeah, you'll be there. Yeah, for the rest of your life. Depends if they keep putting interest rates up or not, but maybe they can edit that part. (laughs) (laughs) But going back to your point before too about teaching the next generation of architects with the post-occupancy evaluations, I think it's really important even for us as current practitioners to learn from every project we do. One of the aspects I wanted to talk about around that was, you know, the need for constant tinkering. There's an aspect to us for a lot of us as architects to never be happy with the work that we've done and that we need to be able to harness that to not be a negativity but a place to learn to to look critically at what we've done in all aspects of it and assess it and learn from that assessment what is it that you would change and it's okay for things to be not right and I think specifically and particularly around sustainability not everyone's going to get it right day one but you don't have to give up when you don't get it right. You learn from what it is and we'll have one or two attempts at figuring something out and everyone does that. Everyone has been doing that and looking at what other people have learned, you know, collaborating, sharing experiences, sharing learnings with people, using that critique as a way to really focus on how do we improve the industry as a whole, how do we improve practice as an architect and how to make sure that our attention to detail is focused on on the right thing rather than the wrong thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think really depends on how we take feedback and criticism and there's a way of collective intelligence and always improving our future projects and instead of making the mistakes and feeling bogged down by it. But I guess like what's something that you'll take away from this project that will influence the way you work in future projects in your daily life? I think for me, it was the first time I was able to be the only person to control that whole process, to understand from initial conception of an idea through to 
post-occupancy, what level of thought and research and detail needs to go into a project. And I think the lesson that I learned from that was once you start constraining yourselves in something other than aesthetics, it frees up your aesthetics a bit more and you can achieve an outcome without the time agonizing over should something be one way or the other because decisions made around other things start to cut out unnecessary problem solving. And so while there is a conception, rightly and wrongly, that that level of rigor in research and documentation takes longer, it can actually help speed up a process and not actually take longer. The other misconception I think that I learned from it was, and this was part of the driver of the project in the first place, was that you can have the same aesthetic outcome, but in a high-performance building for the same price. It doesn't cost more to do a properly sustainable house. It doesn't cost 10% more. It doesn't cost 5% more. It can cost the same amount by making good strategic decisions, by making the most of what uh, availability of resources you have at hand, whether that be information available to you during design or supply chains that can help drive the right outcomes for the same price. And probably my next version would be to try and do it for even cheaper and see what you can, how far you can push it so that there's no real excuse that any housing has to be low performance. We should just take, hopefully, the, um, you know, the idea to take away that roadblock of cost, the misconception that it has to cost more away so that that's not even an argument anymore. We just start to focus on better performing buildings for everyone. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of the things that clients are afraid of or aren't even aware of because they are not architects and they are not involved in this industry where they know about the processes and how much things are costed. So I guess like what do you have to say to the listeners out there who are on the fence on designing a house that is sustainable but they are holding back because designing that quote-unquote typical house is easier or cheaper but not necessarily is ultimately that the average cost of a house in australia is uh, around 850 to nine hundred thousand dollars, and it's by far your biggest investment so if i was going to spend that money again if i had a choice to spend that money i certainly wouldn't want to spend it on one that didn't provide me a level of comfort one where i didn't feel comfortable for most of the year because it was either too hot or too cold it's an outrageous suggestion, I think, that most of us in Australia are forced to live with, whereby we have to spend so much money on something that provides us so little benefit in our life other than a financial investment. And I think if you really look at it that way, the function of what a house is, is to provide you safety and comfort. And if it's not doing that, then there's a problem with our value system without wanting to get too political. <laughs> <laughs> I was just listening to another podcast from Hearing Architecture as well, where one of the advice is that you don't need to design a big house for yourself. A small footprint is more than enough and it's just thinking about what's necessary for you and just think about what other things that you don't have to have and just think about the essentials. We as humans don't need a lot. No, we don't. And look, it's also to that point, it's not about removing joy from life or removing any kind of or restricting yourself. It's about understanding how things can be used in multiple ways. So you're right. A lot of the, the particularly the mass housing stock are oversupplied with useless place and space. They're huge footprint. We officially have the biggest housing in the world for new builds, bigger than the US. But if you have a look at most of those housing estates, the leftover space for the external area is minuscule. And we're talking blocks of land that are three or 400 square meters with maybe 12 square meters of usable outdoor space. And it's a huge use of unnecessary use of resources, but it's a huge loss of land and the lack of density that that provides without having to go too deeply into another conversation about urban density. That is a huge part of our problem. And the lack of amenity in the, those houses, I think, is what drives many people to want more rather than want better is that they don't feel satisfied with what they want and they think that the way to get more satisfaction is to have more rather than having better and smaller. Yeah, and I guess this is a good lead-in 
for some of the questions from our listeners. Like, what's the next steps, do you think, to circular economy for Brisbane? Brisbane's in a fairly unique situation in the sense that the eyes of the world are focused laser sharp on 2032. Some people's eyes will be focused laser sharp on 2032. And the commitments that the state government has made to providing sustainable games, climate positive games, and part of that will be how they rebuild venues without any of the demolition waste or deconstruction waste going to landfill. That's going to prompt a lot of investment, I think, from the state, both financially and through policymaking to help support new industries in remaking. Provides us a really good opportunity to get ahead of the game, much like we have, we're starting to with uh, energy. If we do get to our decarbonized grid of 80% or whatever they're aiming for for 2032 at the same time, we can remake materials with renewable energy. All of a sudden, we're in a different, very different place to where we are now. I think also the circular economy uh, requires us to think about construction and buildings and procurement in a very different way as well. So as I mentioned before, it's sort of more down the line of being a custodian of materials rather than an owner of a thing. And so when we, we do use objects, it's trying to understand how long we've got them for, what we have to maintain them with, what do we do with the end of them, what marketplaces can be set up to resell those things. Interestingly, if you have an old heritage house, it's quite easy to go and buy materials from old houses to remake part of your own house. And I think that's going to get set up more broadly. It needs to get set up more broadly across all aspects of our community so that things can be much more easily reused and repaired and recycled. And then there'll be uh, changes in the way that we use technology. So whether home cooking becomes a service, which is owned by the manufacturer and, and leased to the household user, all the way through to how our energy is made and stored and procured, whether we become part of a wider uh, energy network as uh, micro producers rather than consumers of energy. And so all those systems need to start to to shift and change a little bit. And I think as materials continue to be scarce because of global events, whether that be uh, the war in the Ukraine as it is at the moment, causing timber prices to uh, remain high across the world, to floods, um, bushfires. We suffered those extreme bushfires in 2019 and 2020, which destroyed millions of hectares of forest, which you know was a timber source for us as a construction industry. In some parts, and keeping in mind that you know it takes 20 to 25 years to grow a pine tree for timber framing and up to 80 years for hardwood, 80 to 100 years for hardwoods, these things don't uh, quickly appear. And so our lack of availability of resources coupled with more stringent controls on carbon globally, not just here in Australia, not just our own policy, will force us to start looking at what we can reuse. Our idea of reuse is actually... One that if I spoke to my grandparents, um, if they were still alive, they would have just looked at me and said, yeah, so what? Um, that's what they used to do. They used to do it all the time. And we've moved away from that in the latter half of the 20th century. And I think we'll start to swing strongly back towards it due to the cost of materials, the cost of living, lack of availability and the increasing impacts of climate change on our supply chains. Yeah. And it will definitely become more aware and even conscious about it as we move on towards the future years. One last question for you to close it up. So researchers are saying that circular economy will function like the capitalistic neoliberal system. The highest and richest bidder will win the materials. Would circular economy take on the capitalistic paradigm again? Or would it really support social equity as it promises? It's a good question. I mean, there's a reason it's called the circular economy. It's a different economic model. And so we will have to reinvestigate all those rules and regulations and the different opportunities and opportunistic approaches people have taken to the economy previously. There is definitely ways in which circular economy will be maintained as a, a sharing economy. It is ultimately a big part of it. How do we share parts of what we have? And that comes down to how we choose to engage with the circular economy. Ultimately, there's many, many aspects to it. There is a, a version where you can definitely tap into someone who owns everything and 
use their materials or their products or their servitized outputs from products at a very high price. There's also parts of it where we can simply lend parts of things to each other. If you're not using your house, do you lend it to someone, which is basically where Airbnb set up its version of homestays. There's many ways in which uh, people can benefit from that themselves. So I think like anything, the consumer has to make those choices. There will always be opportunity for the opportunistic people to make money. And look, ideally, we all are better off with the circular economy. I don't think there's a reason why we shouldn't all be better off. Better off doesn't mean financially richer necessarily. It just means we have more access to more things and more opportunities and to have a better quality of life. So yes and no, I guess is the answer to that one. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting because I did a university assignment on multi-generational housing back at UQ and that start to where you think about future generations of people and what about the older generation once they are no longer there how does the house becomes flexible for those people who still need to live in those and it was just a great studio to learn about circular economy just the beginning of it and understanding and considering about the future uses of it but yeah, it was one of my favorite studios just because like, you get to design a really nice house that caters towards sustainability. All right, we'll close that off. Thanks for joining us, Andrew, for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge and sharing all your lessons learned and experiences with us. Thank you very much. Always happy to talk about it now with people. Um, Always happy to share what I know. Awesome. Thanks, Dad. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much to our host, Lily Zhang, and her guest in this episode, architect Andrew Noonan from Andrew Noonan Architects. Thank you so much for sharing your stories about circular economies in architecture, and we're looking forward to your future projects. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcast hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad, and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review, and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Imagine production team was Lily Zhang and Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.